Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. This podcast is available in all the podcast apps. If you haven't subscribed, please pause just now and subscribe and rate me. It helps others discover this podcast. How are you doing, breathers? Yeah, that's my name for all of you who are taking time to breathe and be in the present moment. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Dorothy Ohoko. When I'm not doing my day job in communications, I facilitate a mindfulness course at Google called Search Inside Yourself. Today's quote is from St. Augustine. Peace in society depends upon peace in the family. My guest today is Helen Juma, a certified master life coach and a certified relationships coach. She shares about migrating from Kenya to Canada after the 2007 elections to give her children a better opportunity. She also shares deeply about what she misses about Kenya. She has over 20 years experience of helping individuals and couples better their lives by mentoring and coaching. She's passionate about conscious parenting and how it transforms society. Helen is the author of It Takes Two to Tango, How to Enjoy Lifelong Marriage, and my favorite, pop star, Sees Your Life's Center Stage. She's the host of Love Unlimited with Helen podcast that magnifies her passion and drive for relationships. You can find her on www.guruhelen.com. Welcome, Helen. Welcome to No Head Podcast. Thank you, thank you. I am so glad to have you because I remember you uh, as a student of mine a long time ago. I have followed the work that you do and I'm just thrilled that we can have this moment and talk about these topics that are important to us. It's an honor. As you have been following me, I have been following you. You have been my light. You have been the light on my path. You have been my mentor. And I still remember the words you said in our classroom when I was a first year. They ring deep in my head. You have to work for what you want. And I still do. Thank you. (laughs) I love that. You have to work hard for what you want. I love that. And Helen, before we start, as you know, our practice is just to do a few breathing exercises for us to arrive. I told you I haven't had power the whole day and the power just came back and I was thinking, oh my, now I have a date with Helen. We are having no head podcast. We are just going to tether from the phone and do this. And then the power came. So I am so relieved. But (laughs) I need some, you know, let's breathe together and then we can get started. All right, yes, so we, will we will breathe in to a count of five, hold to a count mm-hmm. of two, and then let it out slowly. And we will do that yes. three times. Yeah, let's begin. Yes. Breathe in, hold, breathe out slowly. 
Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly. And now let your breathing return to its normal rhythm. Not controlling anything. Just feeling your breathing in and out. Thank you. Wow. Wow, wow. That's wonderful. Thank you. I love it. Thank you you for breathing together. And that brings us to to the podcast. The very first question I ask my guests on No Head is, how was 2020 for you? And what were the lessons that COVID-19 taught you? 2020 taught me a lot. It brought me to a classroom called life. And I enjoyed it every day. As much as there was so much negativity, fear, and apprehension Mm. in the middle of the storm, I learned to look for the lesson within. And from 2020, I remember even before COVID, I had made a calling to myself Mm. to come back to me and learn every day. And when COVID happened, it was just the perfect setting for me to go back to learning. And I did, learning I did. I have read more books than I've read before. And in 2020 is when I finished my book, The Popstar. I was able to finish it seated on the lockdown and I engrossed myself, got lost in my writing, borrowed ideas, talked to people, and it was a wonderful time. It's still a time when there was still storm all around me. While it was around, around March, April, just after the outbreak, And when there was curfew in Kenya, my mother suffered a major stroke Mm -hmm. and I was in it in the middle. I'm in Canada. I can't go to Kenya. The hospitals, my sisters were all over from Nairobi, Kiricho. My mom was in Nakuru alone. That's when I learned that it's time to learn to let go. Right. Learn to let go what you can't do. You don't need to spend sleepless nights wondering and fearing for the possibility of her dying or possibility of her not coming back fully and letting to letting things take their way path. And while I was away, my sister, one of them got to the Kericho, from Kericho, got to take my mom to hospital. I have good news. She didn't die. She's alive, still laughing. Yes. So she was paralyzed on her right side. She's mm-hmm. still recovering, doing very well. From a stroke, it's a long journey. Mm-hmm. But it's a journey she also had to learn to take on her own. I learned that I have been holding things for her and pushing her, but it was time for me to let go and let her do her own learning. I also learned that I can't be the CEO of, of everyone, pushing buttons here and there and making things learn, move. In mm-hmm. COVID time, that was impossible. So I had to sit back and just ask everyone, do what you can. Are you the first born? Yes. That's the so you're getting my vibe. 
Yeah, you want to see You get my vibe. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm the I'm the co- CEO. But right. I learned I have been doing it for so long. I forgot to leave. I forgot to learn. I forgot to be me. Mm-hmm. I was always on edge waiting for anything to happen. Then I can move to action. Mm-hmm. This time I moved back and let my siblings take over. How did it feel? Terrible. But I learned it's also good to let others grow at their pace. And without me being there, they have grown exponentially. They have become so responsible. They make decisions without me. Now I'm a third party. They only tell me, oh, we need you in this. We need you in that. So I learned to let go. I'm no longer the CEO of everything. I redesigned from that post. I also learned that behind every challenge, because there were so many challenges that we all went through, and with me and my family, also my businesses, there were so many challenges. Out of every challenge, I got a beautiful lesson. Mm. And from then on, I've been looking at every blockade and I'm like, what am I supposed to learn from this? Mm. Why is it happening now? It means there's something I need to learn now so I can move to the next stage. And that has been working. So my three lessons were those ones in 2020. And I pray I remember them for the rest of my life because they are really beautiful. They have brought me to the presence of myself so that I can be able to serve others more easily. And you will, if you don't learn, if 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 you've forgotten about them, there'll be a lesson that will come. because Again. Yes. <laughs> we need to yes. learn. And then after that, we graduate. So uh, true I'm that. glad about that. But tell us, That's I'm, true. I'm, I'd like to also just follow your journey from mm-hmm. Kenya to Canada, to Toronto, yes. you know. To, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, uh, I've listened to a lot of your interviews and you said you are looking for a better opportunity for your children. Yeah. Yes. Your family. Yes. Can you yes. Tell us what were you looking for and what made you take the final step with your husband to go, all right, we are leaving Nairobi. We are going. We're going to Canada. Right. Right. So what happened is uh before we got married, we had visions, we had dreams. For those that haven't read my book, I quoted Patrick, my husband, for eight years. Everybody had given up on us. They were like, nobody quotes a man for eight years and they marry. He'll drop you like a hot cake and get us number two. But that didn't happen because those eight years were a foundation, a very good foundation. Patrick is also a firstborn in a family of 10. I'm a firstborn in a family of four. When we graduated, you know what happens in Africa? You're given siblings to start educating. And that's what happened. So after graduating, we spent the six years taking care of our siblings to get them, to give them a a standing, which we did. And then we decided, well, if we wait too long, we won't have our own. So we had our children and we wanted our children to have better. The time we were in Kenya, but the time we were in university, university was no longer free. We had to pay for it. And we came from humble families. Although we were hard workers, we knew we would be, would, wouldn't be able to take them to that level of education that we got at that time. Then come defranchising of universities. Education started being coming down and down, everybody having their own opinion about the curriculum. And I did not like that as a person who, as a teacher, I 
I'm a person of structure and in some sort of continuity and certainty. When I saw it going that way, we opted to take our children to a Catholic school. But the only other Catholic school we had to take, we could take them to was either Kianda or Strathmore. With a teacher's fee of TSC, we wouldn't afford to take them to Strathmore or Kianda. But we knew wherever there's a will, there's a way. And we sat down and said, what if we were supposed to go out of Kenya to get what we wanted for our children? What if? Mm. At that moment, mm. we didn't even know where to go. Luckily, by coincidence, you know, Dorothy, I know you know the universe conspires. Yes, it does. <laughs> we talked about this thing in 2005 or 2004 thereabouts. And in 2006, my husband gets a job in an immigration company called Wix. It's in Sarit Center. Mm -hmm. He worked there for four years. While he was there, he learned of opportunities in Australia, in UK, and Canada, and even US if you wanted as a student. But we looked at all these countries and we said, which one did were we more drawn to? We were drawn to Canada. And by the fact that I had done French, the idea of even going to Quebec was a possibility. So I said, if we go there, don't worry. I'll smash the French, I'll bonjour all of them out of the way and we'll do whatever we're supposed to do. So we did that. We went and we applied. We applied for Canada as skilled workers. It took us five years to get our visas. We applied in 2007, just mm -hmm. after the violent elections of 2007. And we felt unsafe because I come from Central and my husband comes from Nyanza. We knew this is not a place also we want to have our children being told they're children of this tribe or this tribe. We wanted them to be global citizens. So that propelled us to move faster. We applied. Five years down, 20, 2012 August, we got our visa. So you got we did not know after five years? Five years. Wow. It, it took that long. Patience. Patience. The process is very rigorous. There are times you have to go for health checks. They need to see your bank statements. They want to verify your academic. They want to verify your professions. They verify everything. It is a rigorous, very, very rigorous. The skilled worker program was very rigorous. So we waited. And Patrick, because he was in the, on the inside of the immigration stories, he told me, you have to wait. Be patient. It will take time, but it will come. So we waited. When we got the visas in 2012, that's when now we started parking, clearing with schools, our places. By that time, my husband had moved on from that company to Inorero University, which is no longer there. And he was working there as the brand and marketing manager. So we connected our strains, our fans. We got help from our brothers who we had educated. Our father-in-law, my father had already passed on and off we left with five suitcases. No one to receive us at the airport. We didn't know anyone. We came and settled in a mm -hmm. motel for eight days looking for a house. We had the money, but we didn't know the, the system. And in Canada, everything is so structured that you cannot buy a phone if you don't have a social insurance number. You can't open an account without an associate. We didn't know all this. So we land and we go to a motel and they ask us for our home address. We are like, we are from Kenya. We don't have an address here. The gentleman looked at us and is like, 
are you refugees? We are like, no, we are skilled workers, immigrants. And you didn't know this? We said, we didn't know. <laughs> so we moved on and everyone was perplexed at how we were just walking in the dark. But we were so certain, so certain that we are going to find our path as we go on. And the same faith kept us going. Our belief that we have everything we need to get started kept us going. When we left Kenya, it was plus 35 on that day. We landed in Canada, it was minus 16. We had never experienced winter before. We froze. I thought I would die the first day, but here I am. With all that moving, we got a house. And when we got a house, we were connected with an immigration group that helped us find our path around. Our house was first furnished by the same, a group called St. Vincent de Paul. It helps immigrants to get furniture and everything they need to get started. They furnished our house in three weeks, everything, beddings, cooking, pots, pans, iron box, TV. Our children were given bicycles, computers, everything. We only bought mattresses. <laughs> That's the only thing we bought. And we settled in. Within a month, we were into Canada settled. Children were already in school. They already loved it. For the first time, they saw smart boards in elementary. They were like, we don't have blackboards with chalk. They have computer boards, interactive. And they were so much happier. My first, my second born, who is a girl, was very, very timid when she was in Kenya. But coming here, the teacher got to find out a way to get that personality out. And right now, she's the most active sports girl you can meet. Very outspoken. She's not talkative like me, but she she says two powerful words and keeps quiet. Mm. That's the kind mm -hmm. of a person. And decisive. What have I learned? Sometimes, Dorothy, if you believe in something, even if everything around you tells you it's not possible, you own your vision. Follow it passionately. It doesn't matter how many times people tell you it's impossible. You own your vision and it came to you personally. So right. I learned out of that long, patient, grueling. Sometimes I even told Patrick, let's cancel. Let us cancel. It's too long. Mm. Then we come to Canada. Mm. After the first three weeks of frustrations, not getting a job, not knowing where to go, I told him, let's go back to Kenya. It's like, no, it took us five years to get here. We are not going back. All this time, I felt the challenges. I felt the weight. But at this moment, eight years down, the patience, the, the, the rocks we hit on the way, the many discouragements, they were all pebbles polishing our future. It's beautiful. Right. It's beautiful. You, you, you talked about your daughter being able to just timidity in her, something being an mm -hmm. What do you yeah. think that happened? Because in Kenya, she wasn't. How old was she when she got to Canada? She got to Canada when she was turning seven. She was six, turning seven. Right. What happened in Kenya is uh, she was small bodied. I wouldn't say she was. I don't think she ever was bullied. There was no bullying in the school. Mm. But because she was small-bodied, she had developed her own talk of having low self-esteem. She thought she was not able to be like all the other girls who are older than her. Mm. She thought she would not be faster like any other girls. And every time the teachers talked to her, the teachers, the way teachers in Kenya do, put your hands at the back. Don't look at me like that. And 
the kid learns more that submissiveness is the way to go. Right. So she used to put her hands at the back, lean back down and talk to a teacher looking down. When they came to Canada, they were taught the exact opposite. The teacher from grade one goes down to the student's level and looks at the student and tells the student, look at me, I'm talking to you, look at me. We are having a conversation that she missed there. Here she finds someone who wants her to make eye contact. She struggled, but after a while, she really became the person she is today. When I talk to them, even today, they look at me in the eye. I also had to learn too that my children can look at me in the eye because being a teacher, <laughs> the back of my mind, I have an idea about how a person. It's, it's also not cultural, really, for us it's to. It's not cultural, yes. Yeah, for you to and look I remember, at your elders yeah, in the eye. Yeah, you don't look at your seniors in the eye when you're talking right. to them. Right. So here it is the opposite. So it's a cross cultural experience. Supposed- yes. Boom. Crash. A total crash. Like for me, it was a. Uh, a mess up. I was a bit messed up a bit because I was like, okay, I'm talking to my son. I'm very mad at him maybe for doing something. He used to break cups, mm. cups, cups. And I get mad at him. I expect him to look down in remorse and say sorry. But right. my boy looks at me in the eye and he says sorry. And I'm like, are you really sorry you're looking at me like that? Right. But now I learned with time, cultures are different. There was a, also, that was one of the culture shocks. The other one was Apart from even them, them being Africans, the way we are used to saying this girl is from this tribe, this girl is from that tribe, here it is not said. Mm. It is considered rude to describe someone by where they come from. It's just they are all Canadians. So you either know their name or you describe them by their looks. You don't say that Kenyan girl, that Asian girl. It's racist. So I learned that. Having come from Kenya, you know, we say, right. you know, we go that way. Right. Here, my kids have even caught me on guard and told me, mm-hmm. no, mom, you can't say that. I'm like, what's wrong with that? That's racist. <laughs> so now I'm learning with time to be conscious. And it has also trained me to learn people their names, however difficult. It's easier to describe someone by the name and maybe by how they look like rather than by their origin. Right. So right. that is something also that's very positive they've learned about. And Maria now, as we speak, she she has been at the front of the altar serving in church since she was eight. She and her brother have been competing for, since they came to Canada, they've been competing maybe for four years now actively in the Taekwondo Federation. And that has made her more bold now because she has to stand in the ring alone and fight. The same timid girl, seven-year-old girl who couldn't look at someone, always afraid of everything, even life itself, now can stand and defend herself, talk herself out. And she's not afraid to even challenge me in my thoughts, which is something very honorable. She challenges me when she feels I'm on the wrong. She calls me out. Right. She's only 15, going 50 mentally, but mm. that's what I like. That's what right. I like. So, yes. so tell me, um, I see how Canada has made the kids to be assertive and stand their ground. But what are some of the yeah. things that you feel you miss from home or some of the values oh. that you miss from, from Kenya? Because I, I think it's, it's, a, you know, it's a tug of war. There is the good we it want is. to get from wherever we are in that community, but there's also 
something wonderful about being African and being Kenyan. And oh. So what are some of those things yeah. that you're missing? I miss family. Mm -hmm. I miss social life. You know the way in Africa, and I always tell my friends who are Canadian here, we don't book appointments to visit friends. We don't call to ask if we can come and see you. Mm. If I want to see Dorothy, I'll just find her home. If she's you know, on my way home, I'll go knock at her door and say, Nilikuwa napitia. Mm. Of course, sometimes it was because I smelled chapati, but it's <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but yeah. that, I miss that having friendship, the, the camaraderie, the social. I'd like to call it socialist in the good way, mm. in that in Africa, I am because we are. Right. And we are because I am. Right. The Ubuntu. I will, if my neighbor, who it doesn't matter from which community she or he is from, is suffering, I will get out of my house and step out of my way and help. Mm. Here, it does not happen. If you are sick, call 911. You don't go knocking on your neighbor's door. I don't, I can tell you even the neighborhood that I live with, I only know maybe a handful, five people. Mm. And it's a place with about 50. We do not socialize. We don't know each other. Sometimes I hear, like when I moved here to this neighborhood, I, was I think Nairobi is becoming a bit like that. Nairobi is a bit. Oh, please like don't that. lose the social life. Please don't. Oh, please tell them. Please the tell them. village in Africa is its golden treasure. The village, the life of the village, having people together, move together, work together. That togetherness is what has kept Africa alive. The moment we lose it, we lose Africa. Mm. Because Africa is the hands down the richest, culturally the richest place around. Mm. We have a lot to give, a lot to share. I learned a few Jango words, not even from my husband, from my neighbors. I had two neighbors up in my apartment. I used to live, mm. and they used to call. They call me, "You're an a B B. I do a me cake." I'm like, <laughs> "What is she saying?" But when now my husband comes, I'm like, "Uh, what do they mean?" He laughs and he says, "They said you go, you get the cake, you know." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I learned. I learned a lot of my own mother-in-law's language from my neighbor. Mm. A lot of them. When I was also a teacher, my friend, she's also called Dorothy, coincidentally, mm -hmm. she also used to teach me young. What do I want to say? We are open. We're an open society, very hands open, very mm -hmm. caring, very receiving. It's not the same here. By the way, Dorothy, here, children who are adults have to call their parents to ask if they can visit them. That's how difficult it is for me. And we've mm. said with Patrick, <laughs> <laughs> because when I'm old, I want to walk into a house and get whatever is on the table and eat. I don't want to start calling even the other way. Mm. Parents also have to seek permission mm. to go to their children's home to visit their grandchildren. I find that although it's considered civilized, it has severed the love bond, the mm. respect bond, although they call it respect, there's another form of respect that comes with being family. Right. Family has been crushed to the bones. Mm. I've also noticed- Right, and that's what we have. Yes, keep it, keep it, keep it. And that's why Nimesema, Dorothy, Mrs. A.K. Hapa, that's given. Nope. 
I have, I have to, I want to go to Dala where I knock at my neighbor and another neighbor, I go take mangoes from my neighbor's friend, a banana from this friend, and I sit down under a tree and mm. have fun. Be there. Mm. The idea of your podcast, No Head, the being there mm. is not here. It does not exist. Mm. People here don't live to be there. They live for credits, for money, for work. You'll hear someone saying, I can't go visit my parents because I'm working. My mom is in an old age home that has COVID and I can't go visit or take her away from there because I'm busy. What's more important? Your family or your job? So here it's like a modern day slavery where relationships have been severed to the benefit of the larger economy. Is it good? Yes. But people should not lose who they are, the essence of themselves, just and, and, for money. Right. Well, and that's what COVID has taught us, isn't it, Helen? That yes. In this yes. lockdown, we've seen how relationships are so critical. You know, you thought you could do it Very. again, but what we were hungering for is connection, connection yes. with other people. Yes. Yeah. Like now I miss hugging. I'm a hugger. I love, I'm a bear hugger. I love crushing people's ribs. I feel good about it. I can't do it. Well, you can do for your kids and the family and your husband. Yeah. Those ones, they get in arrears. (laughs) (laughs) They get it. But if I meet someone I haven't seen for long, I go and I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry. I can't hug you. Yes. You go, you stretch your hands and then you hold. You're like, okay. I miss you. Right. You cross your hands and that's it. There is that, the rubbing together of bodies and cry, the hormones that we release when we get that hug. Right. We are no longer having it because of COVID. Yet before COVID, we ignored that. You're right. We, the we, connect. yeah. we ignored connections. Now yeah. we crave connection. Yes, yes. That brings me to actually uh, something I wanted to ask you because when we were thinking about what topic, I was really torn between talking about Popster, your book, talking about mm-hmm. it to tango. And I kept telling you, well, maybe we should talk about this. And you know, bottom line, you said, look, relationships are the foundation of everything we do. And I yes. think that's it. So I wanted you. you to take us to this idea of relationships as being foundational to even a national psyche, to our own well-being. How does relationship play out now, day-to-day and in everything that we do? Well, relationships are the first, let's assume life as a seed that is put on the ground to grow. When you put the seed of life, the first leaf that comes out is called experience. Imagine when a child is born, the experience is being smacked in the butt. It's painful. The kid learns out of pain, what are you supposed to do? You cry. That's feedback for that smacking in the butt. That's the feedback. The second sprout is the relationships you have with your parents, those around you, those that give you the first life experiences. You're taught by the time you grow up, eat this, When you're nine months, don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't do that. And these relationships and whatever you're being told as experience, you experience fear, pain, joy in the same setting of a family. That becomes the first brick 
of how you will treat pain, fear, joy, love for the rest of your life. And if it is negative, the rest of your life will end up having more bricks of the same kind. If it is positive, the rest of your life ends up having more bricks of the same kind. That is why even in the Bible, it says the first seven years of a child is when you mold them. After that, it's impossible. It's not impossible, it's difficult. I don't want to say it's impossible because the Bible says train up a child in the way he should grow and he'll never depart from it. Apart from seven years old, that person changing, like for us adults, it has to be a lot of hard work, consciousness, mindfulness, and a lot of learning. When a child is at seven, they already know what is called right, wrong. They know how to lie and stick to their lie. They know how to be cheeky and get away with it. They have learned all these things by the time they are seven. So the, how did this kid learn? From the experiences and the relationships that they had. An abused child at that young childhood ends up learning that abuse is an integral part of life. Whether you see it as good or bad, it's not important, but they know abuse is part of that life. If they saw their parents drinking and fighting or disagreeing or doing alcohol, whatever they were doing, the child knows knowing, grows up knowing those are part of life. And the child ends up forming relationships based on what they have learned, what they believe to be true. Until someone comes up and changes their perspective by challenging them. No, this is not the truth. This is not really how it is. It is, doesn't have to be part of your life. You can choose to not have it to be part of your life. But until they get that experience, they will create relationships on the lines of their beliefs. Now, that's a child. Let's go to society. As a society. We have certain stratas of beliefs that change, stay until they are challenged. When we were growing up, there's a song we used to hear in the radio, Asubui. So many vijana, muongeze pia bidi, mwisho wa kusoma, mtapata kazi nzuri sana. Wow, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. <laughs> But guess who used to play it? Leonard Mamba Mbatella, Asubui, yes. 630. When yes. we're going to high school or we're yes. doing our preps in the morning, you hear that's the one of the songs that used to be sung in the morning. And there's another one, although that one had very good motivation. Uh, All those songs, formed our belief, our thought processes, our societal norms. Nikisoma kwa bidi, nitapata kazi nzuri sana. Kama mimi ni mkulima, ni amke mapema, nichukue jembe na panga, niende shamba, sifai kuwa mvivu. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Until when now it came to a point where you go to the farm and there's a drought. Umelima shamba, hakuna mvua. You start asking, I was told I shouldn't be lazy. What else do I do? Or you finish your degree and there is no work. There are no jobs. Siku hizi kuna uh, inaitwa tenderpreneurs. So that's why we 
Yes, tendapreneur. Kwa hivyo hakuna haja ya kusoma sana na kufanya kazi. Unachukua tendapreneur. See ah. that challenged ile kazi atisiju utapata kazi nzuri ukisoma sana. Ukisoma sana utapata kazi nzuri sana. That one was challenged. I think it was even challenged by the time we were graduating in 1997. Mm. People had started noticing not everyone who graduates gets a job. Gets a job. Right. Not everyone who gets first class honors gets the top position. Right. Not everyone who has a doctorate becomes a lecturer. And we started asking what's happening. This is testing our usual beliefs. And with that our beliefs were changed and we started looking for other ways. Of course before that everything becomes quagmire, it becomes confusing just like when ants are going on a line and you disturb the pattern they become quagmire before they do another pattern. So now my country beloved country Kenya has just started rerouting to other parts people are becoming tenderpreneurs i'm looking at bbc i'm so impressed at the inventions i'm seeing from mm. kenya mm-hmm. people are inventing hydro agriculture using drip agri- agriculture people are going to farming using modern methods someone has a degree in architecture he's tendering cattle and getting millions kuna wale wamenunua mashamba at river they are building custom homes for people mm. connecting banks and uh, these loaning people and doing that mm. and how do they learn that they had to create new relationships they had to create new mindsets so that they can get new ideas mm. they say that an old jembe iwezi lima shamba mpya lazima utafuta jembe mpya that is how to create a new relationship in kenya as a society the relationships of just being a professional line have been dismantled right. most of the people are now getting to associate with groups that help them grow those are the relationships that feed them globally it's the same it's not just kenya even here people are learning although here education is can i say adapting quickly to the changing trends now people here are not going mostly to white collar they are mostly blue collar mm. so degrees are now being tuned and the diplomas being tuned to blue collar people who are building roads doing whereas, forestry cutting trees whereas you know what happened with kenya i think from moist um, time was that we killed yeah. the tertiary colleges so yes. became a university all the diploma colleges that was university so we have almost killed that tear that gave the blue collar jobs to create all these degrees where wow. they're lacking a skill so you can imagine what that looks like for that's a nightmare to any economy in the world any economy the blue collar is the backbone wow. we used to say agriculture is the backbone agriculture is entirely blue collar Right, right. We used to say tourism is black is a backbone. It is still blue collar. People have to go out there, travel into the rough roads, do tourism. The white collar of it is only 1 or 2%. Right. We need our blue collars back. I taught in Kinyanjui Technical and uh, Rika those were the middle level mm. and everyone wanted their college to become a university. And I used to cheer that I'm like no. No, 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 no. Yeah. coming here blue collar is the way to go there is actually there are a few universities here universities set aside for technical degrees is that what we should yes. encourage the young people in kenya who are who are thinking university if you want to really go 
study technical education and you'll have opportunities out anywhere in the world. Yeah. In fact, my, my son, mm. my son, who is currently going to be a second year in engineering, he had a group of five friends. Out of those five friends, only him and another one took the, the traditional university path. The other three went to technical universities and they are going to be masters at whatever they are going to take. Mm. If it's plumbing, you can imagine having a guy with the technical knowledge of plumbing inside out. If that person comes to your house, they do a thorough job. They mm. look at the structure. Right. They look at the density of the material around you. They look at the water quality. They look at electricity. They look at connectivity. They do all that. Our funny pipe na glue. They mm. do a good job. Mm. And they even get professionally certified such that they are able to charge it a premium because they are professionals. See, Juakali, you don't charge them low because they are not experts. You charge well and they do a good job. What is the room for error? Minimal. And what is the room for corruption in that place? Minimal. Because professionals don't want to spoil their reputation by being corrupt. Right. They belong to an association or a body that protects their reputation. In Kenya, we need that desperately, desperately. I remember when I was in Rekha, they closed down. That's Rekha is somewhere in Embu, it's a technical university. They closed down plumbing. Yes, that has happened over the past 20 years. I think for me as a oh. someone who was in education, I feel sad because yeah. I felt like we were killing such a vital part of the education yeah. system. You need the tertiary education. You don't need it. You need it. So, so I think now... Degree just, is just... I would like yeah. to say as degree as the icing on the cake. Yeah, so now the we're going back. The body of the cake is the, is the, is the technical yeah. part. Yeah. The doers. We need the doers. Yeah. Degrees mostly teach people to be managers, supervisors, certifiers. Uh, uh, but who uh, is doing uh, the job? Who I is think, doing the job? I think that has come to bite us. And I see, uh, you know, I see yeah. now we are reconverting the universities that had been colleges into. So we're going back because oh, what happens yeah, when you make a wrong decision, the consequence of that decision comes back to bite you, comes back yes, to the economy, you know. We are a long way from there. A really fully functional economy. You cannot just have yes, we do. degrees and not have tertiary education and have people who are doing the skills, the that. plumbing, yes. the electricians. We need them. The we mechanics. need doers. They are the doers. We need yes. Doers. So yeah. we are missing yeah. that. And we've we killed it for 20, 25 years. So imagine the yeah, work that is. we need to do. But I wanted you to talk, you've talked about relationships at that societal level, which yeah. led us to education yeah. with that. I wanted you yeah. to come back to the family level, which yes. is really critical because I think that when I look at whatever ills that face us as a society, the ills start from that family level, whatever lack there 100%. And so what can be done? Like you, you talked about, if, you're, if all you see in your family is hurt, then what happens is that's how you know yeah. the world is. If what you yeah. see is violence, that's what you see. If what you see is people labeling people by their tribes, then that's all you yeah. know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking as, as someone who's been away for, for this long, and as you mm -hmm. look back, and as, as, yeah. as a therapist and a coach and a mentor, yeah. What role do parents have in nurturing the children? And then what role do the children have? And then 
<laughs> now, what family is, uh, you remember we did the science of cells. We did cells and we had, they said there was the membrane and then there was the plasma and then there was the nucleus. The society is the big cell, but the family is the nucleus. It's the center where everything is manufactured and goes to the rest of the cell. If this nucleus fail, the whole society fails. Mm. And that's why we have a failed society globally. There's another word that I like that's very important, listening with purpose. We don't listen to our spouses. We don't listen to our children. We don't even listen to ourselves. Right. We are right. so fast to give answers we haven't even thought what the other person said and even sought to clarify what they really meant. It's like walking around with a spear or a machete out of the heart. You're always ready to stab someone who tries to threaten you. That's how the society has become. And we have broken the society by breaking the marriage. I had friends in Kenya who were facing, sorry, I had friends in Kenya who are facing a lot of challenge in their marriages. And that time I hadn't even become a certified coach, but I kept asking them, have you thought of it that there could be another way of looking at what you're doing? Have you thought of another way, not necessarily going to the pastor or the priest? Have you guys sat down and wrote down all those things you are facing as a couple and looking at how both of you can do only 50% of one? If you can do 50%, then it's half done. The other one will not be hard. It means whatever was impossible becomes possible. Listening without wanting to answer is important in relationships. But that's hard, isn't it? Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> I'm learning. Yes. I am learning because I also grew up in a society, the same society where you walk with a dagger ready to stab. Relationships build societies. Mm. Everything you do in your nucleus family will be, it's like spreading butter on bread. It will mm -hmm. spread, whether right. you like it or not. Right. Just put a little heat and it will sit through to the next slice and the next slice and the society just becomes the same. Right. That's why I went, that's why I came to talk about marriages in when I decided what I really want to do. Should I go back to my old school teaching or should I follow a path where I will show my passion? And I'm so passionate about marriages. One of the reasons is because we have forgotten foundations of marriage. I think it's about parents being present in their role. They're as never parents. present. Yeah. And when they're there, mm. and even when they're in the house. What do they do? They don't know how to deal with their children exactly, right. at home. I'm like, it's your child. It's your offspring for heaven's sake. You can mold it. You can mold it. It's still moldable. Mold it. I'm yes. afraid. What are you afraid of? I don't want to abuse my child. What is abuse? You're not hitting it. You're not nailing it. You're just molding it. And molding does not mean being violent. It means mm. talking to that soul of a child to be an adult. Mm. And I know people think, they do, they mm. think, they mm. know. Talk to that child. The container may be small, but mm -hmm. the soul is open. It's right. big. It's receptive. 
The soul is ageless. When you talk to a child and talk to the soul of that child, Mm. the child receives. But all we do, we only modulate and talk bad things when we are angry, Mm. thinking that mtoto husky, alikuwa tu amenikasirisha. Alikukasirisha ndio, but it's a soul. Mm. What are you doing to that soul when you give it names, when you label mm. it? Where I'm jinga, where I'm lazy, mm. where kazi yako ni computer tu, where mm. umetupa mbao, wewe ni kama babako, wewe mm. ni kama mamako, hamutai grow, hamutai... You know, I used to hear those words and it pains me. Mm. It used to pain me. I learned, I grew up in, this I did not learn from my family. Mm. But I have, I, I was blessed with very good memory. I can remember so many things as far back as until I was three. Mm. I remember so many things. And from what I remembered, I know what should have happened, mm. what should not have happened. Did my parents make mistakes? Absolutely. Yes. But they did the best they could mm. with what they knew. Right. And you know better. better. Yes. I know better. better. I am more equipped. Mm. I have more knowledge. I have more experience than they did. And I can mold my children the way I want them to be without having to use the same tactics my parents did. We all need to learn, the new generation of parents, that taking children away for someone else to take care of them is not a solution to avoiding what you should be doing. When you carry that child or you want to have a child, take the responsibility for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Call it a job. You have a job you just wrought yourself in. Let that child grow under your arms. And I was saying before I even left Kenya, if I had an option between taking my son and my daughters to boarding Mm. schools, I would turn it down. I used to tell my colleagues and they asked me why. I'm like, I want to see them grow every single day until they are old enough to tell me, mom, Tosha, I Mm. want to mold them. I want to see them. I want to prove to the world Mm. that parenting Mm. is still important into the world today. Active, present, conscious parenting. It's important. And when you bring up a child with that kind of a foundation, Imagine what kind of relationships that child will develop. Right. Easy. Yes, I really love it. I think on that note, this idea of conscious parenting, of being present, of being involved uh, in what your children are doing, because that transforms the whole society. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, that's all today in No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. Thanks for listening. You can also follow me on Instagram at No Head Podcast. Catch you next time. May you learn to let go. May you own your vision and may you be present in your relationships. Bye-bye.